this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 11. Mark 11. Great to be back in the pulpit uh, this Sunday. Last Sunday, our family got to worship at First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach, Florida, otherwise known as Family Church. And um, their church has a lot of similarities to ours. It's a downtown uh, church that. Uh, kind of been through some some hard hard times uh and they they called their pastor probably closer to 10 years ago i guess jimmy scroggins um and uh done they've up, kind of updated their facilities and everything but they're doing a remarkable job of reaching people for christ and it's always good to get away <clears throat> and learn from other churches i'm usually really busy on sundays as a pastor and so when i have a chance to get away and see what other people do it's always helpful and so it was great just to be able to talk with their staff and just kind of see all that they're doing melissa got to do the same thing she got to go over and spend an hour with their uh, preschool people and kind of see what they're doing with kids ministry and everything and then as a bonus uh, I also got to go on Sunday to their class for their prospective members, sort of like they're discovering FBC. And so I, it was great to be able to sit in on that and sort of observe what they do uh, with their their class for uh, for new and prospective uh, members and everything. That was terrific. Uh, and then we got to uh, that church. Uh, many years ago, started Palm Beach Atlantic University, great Christian school, and so Courtney got to got to go to their open house and see uh, their campus and talk about the possibility of maybe uh, going there. It's a great great Christian uh, university, and then at the end of the week, the church sponsored a conference for pastors. And so Melissa and I both got to go to that and go to tons of seminars and workshops and, and things like that. And the conference was called Sharpen. And so it's good to get away and sharpen the saw sometimes. And it makes you fresher and better when you, when you get back. So, but it's good to be back um, today. So we are in Mark and we're going to be in Mark uh, straight through to, uh, through to Easter. So we are in uh, the most exciting part because now... From this point on, we're, we're in Passion Week in Mark. We're going to be just walking uh, throughout the events that happened in that week in Jerusalem leading up to the cross and the resurrection. That's where we're at and where we're going to be at through Easter. So it's exciting. Let's look at it today. Mark 11, and uh, we are gonna, we're going to focus on verses 12 through 25 uh, today and We'll hit the very end of, of Mark, Mark 11 next week, but let's, let's read from 12 through 25. We're talking about a mountain-moving Savior. That's who Jesus is. And we all face mountains in our lives, challenges in our lives. We need to know about a Savior who can move mountains. Let's look at it. Mark 11, beginning with verse 12. On the following day, When they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found 
nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this text. We thank you for who you are, that your greatness, that that your power, your sufficiency, your love overwhelm the challenges and the problems that we can face in in a broken world, that you are so big that our problems beside who you are just seem so small. And we thank you that for your love that, that you are, that you are always, you're, you always know exactly what we need, exactly what we don't need. Sometimes in prayer, we don't even exactly know how to pray, but you know, and your spirit intercedes for us, and you always do not only what is best for us, but just more than all we can possibly ask or imagine. And so we pray that you would teach us now through your word and the power of your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, February 14th was a great day, not, not only because it was Valentine's Day. That was terrific. And it was, I had a great sweetheart, Valentine, on that day. And we got to go out and have a wonderful dinner together. It's always fun. Um, but February 14th this year was, a, was also a bonus because it was also the day that the Yankees reported to spring training in Florida. And so ever since the end of that incredible Game 7 of the World Series this past year, uh, this baseball fan's heart has been longing for baseball, been missing baseball. And so it was good to have my team back in camp. And I love baseball not only because of the game itself, but also because I love history, and baseball has tons of history. And the history of baseball is intertwined with American history. And this statue kind of captures one of those moments. Uh, This is a statue of two Dodger players, and Pee Wee Reese has his arm around his friend Jackie Robinson, 
And uh, what was significant about the, the moment that the statue captures is not just that it was one team, one, one player putting his arm around another player, but that it was a white player putting his arm around his black teammate who at that moment was being showered with racial epithets. And Pee Wee Reese walked over and he put his arm around Jackie Robinson and he didn't have to say anything, just what he did made the statement. And that's the way it is in this text. The, the, what happens with the fig tree is what scholars refer to as an enacted parable. Because Jesus would tell stories, parables, but, but sometimes instead of telling a parable, he would act out a parable. And his action would make the point. Kind of like the night that he, he bends down and he takes a a towel and a basin of water, and he washes the feet of the disciples. That's an enacted parable. And that's what happens with the fig tree here as well. What happens actually tells the story, makes the statement. So let's look at that first of all here. Uh, the, the, the cursing of the fig tree. And when we see that in verses 12 through 14, what's going on here? This is one of the most misunderstood texts in the Bible. Because on the surface, people read it and they think, oh, Jesus is hungry and he's ticked off because this tree doesn't have any figs and he's taking out his anger on this poor little fig tree. Well, actually, no. That's not what's happening here. What happens with the fig tree is really all about what's happening in the temple. Because when you look at the text that we read you notice that the two parts about the fig tree are sort of like a sandwich, right? So you've got the, the top layer of bread would be verses 12 through 14, and then the bottom layer of bread um, is verses 15 through, uh, uh, verses um, 20 through 25, okay? They're, so they're both sort of about the fig tree, top layer, bottom layer, but then in the middle, what do you have? You have this action that takes place in the temple. So the two incidents with the fig tree sort of like sandwich what happens with the temple and, and, and they're all bound together. What happens with the fig tree is really not about the fig tree. It's about the fruitlessness of what's happening in the temple and Jesus' condemnation of that fruitlessness. And we're going to talk more about that as we go, go along. But let, let's, uh, let's look at this situation here, beginning in verse 12. So it says, on the following day, they came from Bethany. Now, Bethany was a little village, little, less than two miles from Jerusalem. It was on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And it was where three siblings, a brother and two, sister, two sisters lived, Lazarus, and his sisters, Mary and Martha. And they were very close friends of Jesus. In fact, whenever Jesus was in Jerusalem, he would stay at their house. So he would sleep at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany. And then during the day, he would go into Jerusalem to minister and, and come back out at night. And on this particular morning, they're making their way from Bethany to 
Jerusalem, and they see this fig tree. And it's the spring of the year. It says that it was in leaf, so it's in full foliage. But Jesus, growing up there, knew that it was, it was not the season for mature figs. The fig harvest took place between like mid-August and mid-October. So Jesus certainly was not expecting to find mature figs on this tree. But what did happen in the spring is that when all the leaves came out, there would be these swollen buds called pagim, and they were natives like Jesus would eat them. And so they were sort of swollen fig buds. And by the time that a fig tree came into full foliage in the spring like this one has, you would expect to find it loaded with these edible buds. But this tree is deceptive because they get closer and it gives the appearance of fruit, but no fruit. And that was exactly what was happening in the temple. Because there you had the appearance of godliness, the appearance of the things of God. This is where the worship was being done and the sacrifices were being made. It was giving off the appearance of godliness. But in reality, the fruit in the temple was missing. That's what's happening here. Okay, it's the appearance of fruit, but no fruit. You know, Paul in, in 2 Timothy 3.5 talks about people who have the appearance of godliness, but they're denying its power. People who give off the appearance, they're, they're church-going folks, and you know they're religious people, but yet upon closer inspection, where's the power of God? You know, where's the fruit of God? Mac Brunson is the, the pastor of First Baptist Church in in Jacksonville, and he tells about something that happened early in his ministry, and uh, he and his wife Debbie and their kids were still real, really young, um, but uh, but they were they were at, at at their church, and this lady came up and she was talking with Mac and Debbie uh, there in the, the the parking lot, and and then she she walked away, and and one of the kid, little kids at the time, but one of, one of these little kids said to their parents, they said, that lady's mean. <laughs> And she was. <laughs> and the kids picked up on it. Right? Well, kind of mean church people, that should be like an oxymoron, right? Okay? So there are people who give an appearance of godliness. They're religious. But yet, upon closer inspection, the power of God is missing. And the fruit of God is missing. Where's the, fruit? Where's the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. None of us are bearing that fruit to the extent that we would ideally want to, but if we're not growing, if there's no growth, if there's no Root. You know, where's, the, where's the life? So, 
That's what's happening here. Okay? It's not really about a fig tree. <laughs> it's about something way more significant than that. So you see the cursing of the fig tree. Second, the cleansing of the temple. The cleansing of the temple. So that begins in verse 15, and we see that in verses 15 through 17. And again, this is often misinterpreted. Because a lot of people read this and they think, oh, well, Jesus is just upset because of the commercialism that was going on in the temple. It was so much deeper than that. That's, that's really not the heart of the reason for why he was upset. So the temple at that point was divided into four distinct sections. Okay, the outer section was the court of the Gentiles. This is for Gentile people who had come to believe in the God of Israel. And so they had their court that was the exterior part. And then the next inner court would be the court of the women. That was for Jewish women. And then inside of that would be the court of Israel. That was for circumcised Jewish males. And then you had the innermost part where the Holy of Holies was, where only the high priest would go. This action takes place in that outer part of the temple, in the court of the Gentiles. It was a big area. It's like 500 yards long, about 325 uh, yards wide. And so this is where all of the different sacrifices were bought. Pilgrims, when they went to Jerusalem, and this is Passover week, remember. So hundreds of thousands of sacrifices are being made. And they could not bring the sacrifices with them to Jerusalem on their pilgrimage because the sacrifices needed to be without blemish. And so they would have to purchase the sacrifices once they got to Jerusalem. So all of that was being done in this outer area. And that was the only place that Gentiles could go. And there was a sign that made that very, very clear to them uh, that was there. In fact, the, the, the sign that, uh, that separated the, the court of the Gentiles from the other courts said this, No foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. So basically they're saying no foreigners, no Gentiles, and that's what's really meant by foreigners here, Gentiles. No Gentiles are allowed in here. And by the way, in the one place of the temple that you can go, <laughs> we're going to turn that into a stockyard. <laughs> in fact, during Passover week, which this is, it would have looked like kind of like imagine the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and throw animals in crazy. So they wouldn't let the Gentiles go anywhere else. And the one place that they could go was just sort of chaotic. But what really is getting to the heart of Jesus is the perversion of the mission, the mission. And you can see that in, in the verse that he quotes from the Old Testament. So let's look at, at verse 17. It says he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Now this is a quote from the 56th chapter of Isaiah, which is all about the missionary heart of God for the lost. 
In fact, to see the, the, the power of the verse that Jesus is quoting here and to understand what was just striking at his heart, you need to see kind of the flow of that text. Let's look at Isaiah 56, 6 through 8. And it says this, God says, The foreigners who have joined themselves to the Lord, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. So we see here that the vision of God was what? The vision of God was for these foreigners, Gentile people, to come to know him. And his vision was for the temple to be a place where, where people from all nations, Jews and Gentiles, are joining together in joyful worship of the one true God in unity and in worship. And, and God says here, for my house, and this is what Jesus quotes here, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for what? For all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather others to him besides those already gathered. Now, what could better describe what has been happening in the ministry of Jesus? What has Jesus been going around doing for three years? He's been going around and he's been reaching out to the outcast, to the broken of Israel, the irreligious Jews, people like prostitutes, people like tax collectors, you know, wayward Jews who were far from God and who were scorned by everyone else, the outcast of Israel. Who else has Jesus been reaching out to? Gentiles, right? He's been people like the, you know, the woman at the well and a Roman soldier, and he's been going up to the Decapolis, which is like a Gentile area, and reaching out to, to, these, to these people. Um, and so Jesus has been including the very people that the temple was excluding. And not only that, but by the time of Jesus, they were expecting the Messiah, but they were expecting that the Messiah was going to come and do what? Purge Jerusalem and Israel from the foreigners, from the Gentiles. Take them out. And Jesus, the Messiah, has come. But the Messiah is not doing what people expected him to do. He's reaching out to people who are far from God. He's reaching out to the outcast of Israel. He's reaching out to Gentiles. He's reaching out to irreligious people who are far from God. Now, I think the application to the church is obvious. Because just like the temple had lost its mission, churches can lose their mission. You know, we see from Isaiah that God's 
design for the temple and for Israel was that it was to be a lighthouse, a beacon, right? That was going to light the way and say to the rest of the world, hey, this is how you find your way to God. Come on in. And, and they, had, they had perverted that. They had, they had stood it on its head. They, they lost the mission. Right? And, and, and it's so easy to do that in the church because we can, we can begin to focus on those who are already gathered. What does God say here at, in, in Isaiah 56, 8? He says, I'm going to gather, uh, gather others to me besides those already gathered. If, if we're just focused on the people that are already here, we're missing the mission. We're losing the reason for our existence. Just like a fire exists by burning, a church exists by mission. We lose the mission, we lose it all. So the message here for us is that if we're going to have the heart of Christ, it's going to be a missionary heart. It's going to be a heart that's reaching out to people who are lost to people who are not in any church today. But do we have a vision for them to reach them? Right? I hope you're praying for the people in your life, right? The people that hopefully you wrote down on that little card a few weeks ago. People that you know that are far from God. Are you praying for them? Are you sharing with them? And we've got to have a heart not just for lost people in this community, but for the unreached peoples of the world that have never even heard the name of Jesus. Right? Those things, those things we have to just keep, keep at the forefront. We lose the mission, we lose everything. You know, and one of the, one of the outcasts of Israel that Jesus had reached out to was Matthew, who had become one of his disciples. And Matthew wasn't a Gentile, he was a Jew, but man, he was a Jew who was far from God. Tax collector. We got a lot of those people in our community too, have you noticed, right? People that have had some passing, you know, they may have a church background or whatever, or some kind of a religious background, but man, they're out there. Far from God. That was, that was Matthew. But Jesus had loved on him, built a relationship with him, and one day he approaches Matthew and he says, follow me. And he followed. And what did Matthew do when he followed Jesus? Matthew had a vision to reach his lost friends. And so he has this party. And, and, and a di- like a dinner, a dinner party. And so he invites a lot of his, you know, his tax collector and very far from God friends to come. And he has Jesus and the disciples. And they're all there. And they're all mingling together, and they're eating together. How did the religious establishment react to that? We don't have to guess, because Matthew tells us. Look at it, Matthew 9, and verses 11 and following. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, and this is Jesus, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus here in verse 13 is is quoting from Hosea. And it's a passage in which God is, is, is talking about the fact that, look, hey, don't come to me with all of your religious ritual and all of your sacrifices when you don't have compassion and mercy for people. Because it all rings hollow. It's empty. And now, on this day in the temple, what's happening? Jesus is in the temple. He's in this place where during Passover week, hundreds of thousands of sacrifices are going to be made. But where's the mercy? Where's the mercy for the lost, for the hurting? Where is it? Where's the mercy for people who are far from God? I'll tell you where the love and the mercy is. It's in Jesus. And Jesus, before the end of that week, Jesus is going to show his love by becoming the sacrifice for all of us. The cleansing of the temple. Third, we see here a lesson about prayer. The next day, they, they come upon this fig tree once again. And Jesus, we see, had another purpose in what he did. He was making a statement about the temple, but also he was going to use this to teach them something about prayer. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, you see this remarkable balance. Because you see he's reaching out to the lost and the, 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 the broken and the hurting, but at the same time, he's... He's building up the disciples and teaching them about how to walk with God and teaching them about things like prayer. And that's what we have to do too as a church, right? There's always that. We're called to reach out to those who are far from God, yet we're also called to, uh, to, 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 to build up, right? To grow, uh, to grow spiritually and grow in our relationship with God. And you see that, you see that beautiful balance there in the ministry of Jesus. So he wants to teach them about one of the most important parts of our relationship with God, which is prayer. So verses 20 and 21, it says that they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus responds to him, beginning in verse 22, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain... Be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So, this is fascinating. Because at that moment, they're on the Mount of Olives, so they're, they're on a mountain, as Jesus says this, but at that place, they can look over and they could see another mountain. And it was a mountain that had literally been moved. It was this one. It's called Herodium. They could see it from where they were standing. <laughs> and everybody knew how this mountain came to be. It looks like a volcano, doesn't it? But it's not volcanic. But it looks weird. It looks unnatural. And that's because it is. Herod, King Herod had taken like a smaller 
mountain, and he'd take, he had people, thousands and thousands and thousands of workers, okay, to take the earth from that mountain and, and, and build this. And at the top of it is a citadel, a fortress. I had a chance a few years ago to, to go to the top of Herodian and to walk around in here, and you can see here the ruins of this citadel, this fortress. So King Herod moved a mountain <laughs> so that he could have his own citadel, his own protection, his own fortress. But it could not protect him from death. And his death was particularly gruesome. But Jesus says that if you know God, you can come to him in the name of the one who has conquered death. And, and, and the mountains that you face in your life, and we've all got them. And if you don't have them today, you will have them. And I'm talking about things that seem so overwhelming if you just focus on the mountain itself. <laughs> but you've got, you come before a Savior in prayer if you know Him. You come before a Savior who has conquered the ultimate mountain of death. And He is able to take your mountains and not just kind of move them around a little bit like Herod. He's able to cast them into the sea. That's the God that we worship and the opportunity that we have when we come before him in prayer. Now, Jesus here in verse 25 links prayer and forgiveness, doesn't he? Verse 25, he says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who also is in, who's in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. It seems like when Jesus would teach on prayer, he would, he would link it with forgiveness. That's the way he teaches us to pray, right? In the Lord's Prayer, in the model prayer, how does Jesus teach us to pray? Forgive us our trespasses as what? As we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Because Jesus knows something. Jesus knows that if you have a hard, unforgiving heart, you don't understand what he's about. You don't understand what he's about. You don't understand what the gospel is all about. Some of you are reading Tim Keller's wonderful book, Prodigal God. And this is the heart of that. It's about the parable of the prodigal son, and it particularly focuses on the older brother who refuses to forgive his younger brother, who refuses to come in and join the party, this party of grace and celebration that this father who represents the heart of God is throwing because the one who was lost has been found. And the older brother is bitter and he refuses to come in and join this, this grace-filled party. Because he doesn't get it. 
He doesn't understand grace. And so he doesn't understand forgiveness. And see, Jesus knows that these things are bound together. And what he knows is that when you begin to really understand what God's love is about, when you really begin to understand what a sinner, <laughs> what a sinner you are, that we all are, and when you understand how much he has forgiven us and the new life that he's given us, then, then, then the reflexive part of that is that you, you can forgive others. And you can love others because you know how much you've been loved and how much you have been forgiven. But see, you've got to taste that first in order to, to be able to, to do that. N.T. Wright says this, Once we start inhaling God's fresh air, there's a good chance that we will start to breathe it out too. Love that. As we learn what it is like to be forgiven, we begin to discover that it is possible and indeed joyful to forgive others. And you see, unforgiveness in our lives is really like a cancer. A cancer is a blockage that prevents the rest of the body from functioning normally. And, and, and that's what unforgiveness is like. It's a, it's a blockage that is, is, is hindering, it's blocking our intimacy and our relationship with God. And if, and if unforgiveness is in your life, friend, you need to get rid of that. You need to get rid of that. If you wonder why your, your vertical relationship with God just doesn't seem right and why your prayers seem not to get past the ceiling, then look at the horizontal in your life. Look at relationships in your life. And if there's bitterness and there's unforgiveness, I don't care if it's towards uh, your spouse or member of your family or somebody, somebody out there that you work with or, or whatever, somebody you go to school with, okay, unload that ball and chain that you're carrying around. Get rid of it, right? Because, because it's, it's, it's hindering, it's blocking, right? And what enables us to do that is going back to the work of Christ, going back to the gospel. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, how? As God in Christ forgave you. See, when you understand grace, when you understand how much you've been forgiven, and that you've, because of the work of Christ, because of the cross and the resurrection, that you've been given forgiveness and new life, that you're, you're, you're free at that point. You're free. And you don't have to carry around bitterness. You don't have to carry around unforgiveness. You're, you're able to forgive. You know what? You've inhaled God's fresh air, and you're able to breathe it out, right? And give grace, give forgiveness, give love, all because of what God has done for us in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. Help us to take everything in life back to it and every relationship back to it. Father, we, we, we thank you for this text, which just shows us your heart in such a clear way. And as we just bow before him right now, I would say to you, you know, if you're here today and you've come in here just not certain 
about where you are as far as a relationship with God. Listen, <laughs> the door to God's heart is open, and it's open because of the work of a Savior who bled and died for you and who rose for you and who today offers you new life. But you've got to step into that. And, and you do that through repentance and faith. Turn. Turn today from trying to do life apart from him and turn to Jesus and trust him. Place your life in his hands as your savior and your king. Jesus tells us that when we do that, we're to acknowledge him publicly in just a few moments. We're going to stand and sing. If, if you're trusting in Christ today, I want to invite you to come. It's going to be right here at the front. Just share with me. Pastor, here's what God's doing in my heart. We want to pray with you and celebrate with you. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family, as we, as we serve together and love one another and learn together, follow Christ together, we want to invite you to step out and to come. And we want to celebrate that with you. So Father, we, we give this time together and we ask for you to have your way in our hearts. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.